indicator. Is that about right? All right, I'm uh, I'm going to be speaking from uh, a couple of passages in James tonight. Um, the last one of the last part of James four, thirteen through seventeen, and then the first of James five, one through six, and they they go together because they're both dealing with with commerce and wealth and our how we handle those things, how we uh, our heart is related to the Lord in in dealing with those things. So let me just first start, open us in prayer. Um, Father, we thank you for a chance to look at your word, to learn from it, to hopefully be encouraged by it, uh, to be convicted, to um, act on what you tell us through it. And so pray that your spirit would be here among us powerfully illuminating the word, um, uh, illuminating, going beyond my deficits in communicating it and, and applying it to each heart. And uh, so again, I just thank you for this this privilege and the joy of uh, going into your word. All right, so James four thirteen through 17. Says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yeah, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So this is it's getting along without God in our daily business. And I I think it can be applied much broader than I don't think of it as just a business category, but any sort of anything you're responsible for in terms of an organized activity or any leadership role you're in, um, I think we could apply this this same teaching. But he's talking to Christian businessmen, and he really doesn't specify. But I like to I like to think that he's talking about guys that are uh, very engaged in the church. So they sit on the front row, they raise their hands during the praise choruses, they high five the pastor after a good sermon, and they're of course since they're businessmen on the elder board. <laughs> and. Um, Clayton's the only one that, anyway, doesn't matter. Um, but but so that, so I I just like I like to think of them in this way and but but they're doing their business as if God didn't exist. James has them saying, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So really no different than unbelievers in a sense and. And then James admonishes them, and he writes, You ought to say, instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so, so like so much of James' letter, this, this brought a lot of conviction um, directly to me, and it's because running 
two businesses, uh, Trinity Medical and Vital Signs Wellness. Um, we have, our intention has been to run them by biblical and Christ-centered practices. So, so just in the way we treat our patients, in the way we treat those with, with special needs, uh, in the way we um, treat our staff, uh, in, uh, in mentioning the name of Jesus, in praying with patients, in having Bible studies with staff, uh, prayer time with staff. So we've, we've in, attempted to implement that, and the Lord has blessed us with a beautiful culture at, at Trinity in particular. And, but, but what I realized in, um, in reading this, and I got very convicted about just running the business part of it. And especially, especially Vital Signs, which is a newer business and is, is forever evolving and we're continually making decisions and we're having meetings about that. And, um, and as I was really studying this and meditating deeply on it, I remember, it was a Sunday night, I remember that Monday morning we had a fairly significant meeting related to Vital Signs where we were, we were going to... Um, be making significant plans regarding future vision and implementing that vision. And I, I realized that I'm not sure that I had prayed about it at all. And, um, and I realized I was doing exactly what these, these businessmen were doing, is that something that is a passion, that's a very significant part of my life, in planning the business aspects, I was, it was as if we've got this. You know, it's not not that it's easy, but we you know we can do this. And so, so one of the things I did is before that meeting, I actually sort of expressed that conviction. I read this passage, and then just prayed that we would would put the Lord at the center of what we're doing, that we would seek His wisdom, that we'd wait on Him, all of those all of those sorts of things. And it had a significant impact on the meeting. Now, now the key is going forward that we will remember that that we'll remember the Lord. So really we must, in these kinds of things, in these movements, in these big decisions, we need to seek God's word vigorously. It's what John Piper calls ransacking his word. Uh, we need to pray without ceasing. So that, that's, and see, this is the sort of thing James talking about these businessmen. This is where pray without ceasing applies. So it's not like as if we're on our knees all day long constantly praying to the Lord in an ordinary prayer pattern, but it's, it's if our hearts are continually drawn to him in, in a sense of need. We need you, Father. We need you to be here with us to help us here and to help us do what would glorify you and what would bring your kingdom. We need to seek godly counsel. We need to wait on the Lord. We need to trust in his providence in everything we do. But, but what James knows is that if if we leave God out of our plans, if we say, oh, we're just going to the next town, we'll stay a year, whatever, that if, if we do that, we develop a false sense of security. So it's as if, it's if business is doing well, we're, we're moving along, we've got this. Uh, again, we, we, we feel secure. We falsely feel secure. And James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You think of that image, a mist, just a whoosh, just, there's your life. You're a mist. 
You're here for a little time, then you vanish. Jesus tells a parable of a rich man, a rich landowner, whose land produced great, um, great amount of uh, produce. And he said, well, I'm rich. What I'll do is just tear down my existing barns, build new ones, and then I'll be set for life. I will uh, eat, drink, and be merry, and things will be great. And Jesus said, or God says, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. He says, those who, those who save up for themselves and ignore the needy, this is what happens. And so his security, he, was, he felt extremely secure in what he had in the world, and, and he, there was none at all. His life was a mist. So, so rather, God calls us to set our mind on things above where, where our life is hidden with Christ and God. And, and it's this... He wants us to consider our real life. It's the image of a dot with a, with a line and an arrow coming out from it, um, that, that our life is the dot, and our real life is the line. Uh, again, temporary, short, a mist. Our real life is in heaven with God. He, 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 we need to have that perspective. Okay, so so now consider that you, you're, you're leaving God out of your business plans. You've developed a false sense of security. And the next logical step is, is arrogant boasting, if you will. Or really just arrogance, which then can lead to arrogant boasting. And James uh, writes, you ought, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And again, for me, this perspective of life as a mist is a great antidote to arrogance and boasting. Right? It, it, this just, it, it really, the kinds of things that we want to think separate us are just, whoosh, they're gone in no time. Um, and, and, the, and the idea of having pride in accomplishment before the wor- world, again, Think about how ridiculous that is, that if we, if we accomplish something in the face of the world, if we accomplish something that people notice who aren't believers, it's a great chance to boast, isn't it? But it's a great chance to boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. And I, I almost grudgingly say this, but I, uh, I didn't love Tim Tebow when he was at Florida, but, <laughs> but he is, to me, has been a great example of someone who boasts in the Lord. That he has used his success, he's used what he's accomplished on a national stage to constantly speak the name of Jesus. And so the, and that, that to me is, just, is a great example of that. James talks about the rich boaster in chapter 1. He says, like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So in addition to grieving the Holy Spirit with your boasting, you also just have to think about this. You bring extreme misery upon yourself. Because remember, remember what James said earlier about pride, that the pride puts puts ourselves as believers at enmity with God. It puts us in a position um, where where we have... In essence, it's as if we're holding God at arm's length. We lose our intimacy with him. And, and, 
and, and when we're boasting in our arrogance, we're really at competition with everyone else, right? And so we're going to deal, we're going to constantly deal with jealousy and envy. And so we have to know that, that we're going to lose our edge at some point. That beauty is going to fade, our brilliant brains are going to go to dust. Uh, and, and, and if we're in this boasting attitude, our, our relationships, our relationships that might have been good based on the wealth or the skill or whatever we bring to the table are going to sour, <laughs> they're going to wither away. People won't enjoy your presence. You damage the unity of the body. And, and you can't ever achieve enough to feel satisfied, so you're going to be forever looking for more. See the irony of boasting in your arrogance in that sense. So to summarize, um, don't, don't leave God out of your plans. And again, and just to emphasize this point, um, Again, think about what he's talking about. So these businessmen, again, it sounds like they come to church on Sunday, but most of their day is spent doing their business. Most of their, their week, I should say. So he's really talking about what we do regularly day to day, and he's saying our tendency is to leave God out of that. So... So don't trust in worldly forms of security. Don't arrogantly boast in your own achievements or abilities. If you want to boast, boast in the Lord. Or, he, or a positive way to say those things is seek the Lord at all times. Praise him, thank him, ask for wisdom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So it seems like this paragraph is, is done, but then James tacks on one more sentence that to me doesn't seem to fit the flow of it. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And I would almost expect if he was going to do sort of a summary statement there to say, all right, just remember, if you don't get out ahead of God, don't go out and do the things without praying to him, asking for his wisdom, and waiting on him. But instead he says something, he says, for whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what do you think he's saying there? I think he's, I think he's basically saying that if you if you really embrace this attitude of of seeking God in your business, of waiting on Him, that one tendency is to flip your pendulum to the other side and sit on your hands, or to let go and let God, if you will, in the worst sense of the term. Uh, and so he's saying, and remember, James is a man of action. He's not a man of of just of sitting and, and waiting. So. So he says, so if you know the right thing to do, remember this, if you know the right thing to do, don't use waiting on God as an excuse. If you don't do that, it's sin. It's sinful. All right, so now shifting gears a little bit, um, we're going to a warning to, the, to what I believe are rich non-believers. So let me read uh, 5, 1 through 6. So he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, so so doesn't it sound like he's talking to non-believers? Um, uh, these are some fairly ugly believers, if if they are. But he but he he's not speaking in a way. In in, in the earlier passage, he was. He was giving them alternatives. He was speaking redemptively in a way. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. In this case, it's just, it's just an Old Testament takedown, sort of. It's, he's really just blasting them and telling them what's going to happen. And I think it, it, it likely, it, it's probably almost, it, it's, it's probably not going to be read by those rich people. It's probably really directed toward the poor, abused laborers in his congregation as a means of encouragement, if you will. So it's as if he's saying, I haven't forgotten about you. Be patient. We'll, we'll see this coming in verse 7 uh, next. But he'll, Be patient. Don't grumble. Don't seek revenge. Remain steadfast in suffering. I've got your back. I've got this. Don't try to take it over yourself. All right, so, so verse by verse, verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So, so again, this is in the mode of Old Testament prophecy, and the rich are under an indictment that, that's, that they're under a punishment that's going to happen on the day of the Lord, when the Lord returns. Isaiah thirteen six says, Well for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. So it's a distinct prediction. <laughs> and so the first sin that he calls out is selfishly hoarding wealth. Verses 2 and 3, Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Very vivid metaphors there. Um, so they're... They're hoarding their wealth and thinking to have security and not using it for any good purpose in the community. Ecclesiastes 5.13, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And Jesus in Matthew 6.19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But then the things seem to get worse. They're... They're cheating and stealing. And verse 4 indicates that they are they're, they're getting the laborers to work, work hard all day and then finding some way to cheat them out of, of what they owe them. Can you, imagine, can you imagine bringing someone, say, to your home to do your landscaping and mulch, and they just work their tail off for 10 hours in the hot sunshine, and then at the end of it all finding some technicality. Maybe, maybe you use the wrong kind of mulch or... Something doesn't look right. Get on out. Get out of here. I'm not going to pay you. And these these workers, it, it's very possible that the payment for that day is what they depended on to feed their family. So this is very evil. But worse, verse six: You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So so apparently historians tell us that the rich in this time would use the court systems that they had rigged, in essence, they had paid off or, or somehow used their influence to bring these poor folks who either 
owned nothing or perhaps owned a little plot of land that they could work, bring them into court under false pretenses and steal what little they have from them. And, and he says the righteous person does not resist you. And in this, so, so either he means that, that the righteous person literally has no means, he completely has no power to resist, or perhaps some, some of those that are following the teaching of Jesus are, are saying we, we will not resist. We will not fight back. We're going to let God do that for us. And then finally, self-indulgence. So all, all of this ugly stuff that they're doing, and then they're just they're living in this sort of self-indulgent lifestyle. They're, they're, he, verse 5 says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So they indulged themselves with fine food, nice clothing, nice homes, whatever else would have been an indulgence in that, that day. And he's warning, you're about to be slaughtered like the fat, fattened calf for your, wanton for your wanton self-indulgence while the poor suffer. So, so assuming that, the, again, so let's think about assuming the rich here are, are non-believers, um, what... Uh, what can we learn? What, what, what can we as believers learn from this? And I would say it's the, the first thing is, is again, perhaps the lesson that, that he's teaching is, is patience and suffering, and we'll talk about that next week. But the question is, can we take lessons from this about the pitfalls of wealth? And I, I would say absolutely. Absolutely. The, the one thing is, is that there is a level of, of prophetic condemnation here that we would not take upon ourselves. If, if we're believers. So there is no condemnation for believers. But there is criticism and punishment for believers. Or I would say criticism and discipline. Let me use that word. So, so I, I think it's worth thinking about. So in terms of thinking about how, how we handle wealth is two sort of extremes in the church. Um, and, and one of the extremes is a much more modern manifestation, and the other one is a much older manifestation. But two extremes in the way the church thinks about and uses money. So, and these would be—you you could say these would be ditches on either side of the narrow road. And so, the first one is the prosperity gospel. And I would think most of you are somewhat familiar with the prosperity gospel, but it's the idea that. Financial blessing and physical well-being, so earthly financial blessing and physical well-being are always God's will for believers. So one must simply believe and receive. You must express a word of faith, if you will. Uh, you, you can name it and claim it. So you, you visualize what you want. Father, we... We visited that house today, and it was it was so beautiful. It was up on the hill, and everything, swimming pool, beautiful yard, 5,000 square, everything our family needs for, for, the, for life. I think if we had that house, we would be content. So, Father, I'm just right now, I'm just holding you accountable to your promises. I'm, I'm claiming that house for my family. And then this idea of, of seed faith. Heard, see, I don't hear much about seed faith anymore, but I, I remember when I was a little boy getting letters from ministries that would come to my mom, and 
And it would basically be, it would say, if you will, if you'll give to this ministry, you will get back seven times your gift. Seven times your gift. And then the, the letter would contain all sorts of, all sorts of sort of testimonials with it highlighted in yellow and underlined and of people that had had just that happen to them. They'd given to the ministry, given a check, sacrificed to give it, and then had just large piles of cash come back their way. Well, J- James earlier, earlier in a, a bit of a different context, dealt with this, this kind of attitude very directly. James 4, 2, and 3, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. Okay, if I stopped right there, it might almost seem like I was going to go right into the prosperity message, right? You don't have because you don't ask. Hey, just visualize it, ask for anything. But then he, he adds, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your desires. So, so that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they're holding God accountable to, their, to meet their fleshly desires. It's a fairly dangerous position to take. And this really is not an in-house debate. These aren't, this is not a, a sort of a, 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 a doctrine that we should just like, let's all get along. It's an evil heresy from the pit that promotes greed and worldliness and destroys lives. And the worst part about it, and this is really an American export. This is a, this is a, a, uh, a version of the, the gospel born in the good old USA, and it's been exported to third world countries. Huge, huge churches in third world countries are preaching this, this doctrine. And these pastors fly in in their private jets and pilfer money from the, the poorest of the poor. Well, as you can imagine, there's a ditch on the other side of the road, and call that ditch the poverty gospel. And so here, here being poor through self-denial makes you more righteous in God's sight. So this is a works gospel through and through. So poverty in this case is a self-induced poverty, if you will, is a blessing. Having material possessions beyond the most basic needs is evil. Rich people are inherently greedy and sinful. Spending for more than the bare essentials should bring guilt and condemnation. Now this ditch is obviously much less common. I think it's not very common at all in the United States. Um, uh, and it doesn't fill mega churches. Why is that? Well, because it doesn't tantalize the flesh in the same way that the prosperity gospel does. But it's wrong and dangerous in many ways because it produces self-righteous self-deniers. And it produces condemnation of those who are above the, the set line. What do I mean by the set line? Well, it's the line, it's the line over which if, you, if your income is there, you're evil. I, I remember asking someone one time who was condemning um, ladies driving big SUVs. I said, well, what, which car is okay? And he, he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, we, you're condemning the SUVs. Which car is okay? And he's like, well, okay, I get your point. <laughs> we're going to draw a line over which the wealth limit is okay? 
so 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 then here's here's then a question. How do those of us here tonight I'm, I'm talking about this as if it's other, but how do those of us here tonight struggle in that regard? So I found a quote that perhaps some of us can relate to. It's a by a lady named Kate Bowler, who's a professor at Duke, I believe at Duke Seminary, and I, I have no idea what her theological perspective is in general, but she wrote a book called The American Prosperity Gospel, so she lived within it for, I think, several years. And, and the quote was arresting to me because I w as I was thinking about the prosperity gospel and how horrible it is, I was sort of rising up into that judgmental mode that I talked about. And, and here's what she says. She says, I would love to report that what I found in the prosperity gospel was something so foreign and terrible to me that I was warned away. But what I discovered was both familiar and painfully sweet. It's the promise that I could curate my life, minimize my losses, and stand on my successes. And no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at the creed's outrageous certainties, I craved them just the same. I had my own prosperity gospel, a flowering weed grown in with all the rest. So, so, so I, hope, I hope none of us here blatantly believe or follow the heretic, heretical prosperity gospel. I don't think any of us do. But I'll bet that most of us, in the way she describes, have our own prosperity gospel or, or have been infected by it in various ways. And it's, it's because we're not completely sanctified regarding money, possessions, and security, right? I'm not sure if anyone, if, if you disagree with me, maybe we can, can talk about that. So, so we're like the rich folks that James excoriates, right? Like the rich folks that he prophetically de denounces were tempted to hoard wealth for security, or even for the awesome retirement we planned. Right, I, I really had to, I had to think through, I had to think through mine and Jean Ann's meetings with the financial advisor, and what our hard attitude is, because I'm by no means suggesting that we wouldn't save, but what has our hard attitude been about saving, and where are we placing our security? And so, so we need to go back and pray about that together and, and think back through our plan. And, see, and perhaps, and I would think all of us also are, are tempted to some forms of indulgence, right? Because we live in a very wealthy land. <laughs> um, and so, I, 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 again, I can't imagine that all of us in, in some ways are not tempted to indulgence. And, and forms of indulgence which if we thought about and identified and talked to the Father about, he would give us the grace to avoid, to put away. And, and maybe if we have some folks that, are, that work for us, say in, a, in our yard, in our house, or in our business, maybe we're tempted not to pay them a, a, a generous wage, let me say. So if the prosperity gospel is evil, again, what happens when our eyes open to it? And I think it's, it's just it's typical of all these things. Is one, one temptation would be to whoosh over to some version of the, the poverty gospel. And again, remember, the poverty gospel leads to 
legalism and judgmentalism. <laughs> Look at me, I'm poor for Jesus. You rich people deserve nothing but hell. Well, at least in my mind, I'm, that's where I'm going. I'm going to a spot of, of, of poor, being poor for Jesus because that's what I believe now. But, but walking by the Spirit, we, we know that we can stay on the narrow road. Right? The Spirit empowers us to stay on the narrow road by knowing and following biblical teachings about money and possessions. And so we do this by meditating on his word day and night and becoming doers of the word, not just hearers. And I would propose that if we don't meditate on his word in this regard, we will not do his will in this regard. And, and some passages, I'm not going to read them or, or talk about them, but some passages that are a good place to start are um, Matthew 6, 19 through 24. You might want to write these down. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10. And then 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And I just think these are some of the best places in Scripture to go to get this perspective. And then one more thing um, I would highly recommend is this little book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. He's actually he's written a larger book I think called Money Possessions and Eternity, but uh, but this is short little book, very readable. Um, someone can have my copy if they want. Um, uh, but it to me it was it, it was really tremendously convicting and encouraging. It was it was both. And one of the things Randy Alcorn does beautifully is that the treasure principle is God's prosperity gospel. It's, 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 God's, it's, it's that God does want to prosper us. And actually, sometimes even, even in financial wealth here, not, not all the time. But he wants to prosper us in heaven. He wants us to have a huge treasure laid up in heaven. And he wants to give us an abundant life right now. And Randy Alcorn does a beautiful job of talking about how, how much our giving, because our giving is a choice, but how much our, our free will giving, right, a che- being a cheerful giver, affects our heart with regard to these things. So we, we have a privilege. We have, we have a privilege to live as pilgrims whose true home is heaven with our treasure laid up there. And, and we get here on earth, we get to act as stewards. So we, God gives us he gives us all, all different amounts, but he gives us an amount that we can manage here. And to some of us, he gives great wealth. And to others, he gives gifting without great wealth. But in some ways, he, give, he gives to us richly irregardless. And, and that, that's the treasure principle. That, that's, the, that's God's prosperity gospel. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Uh, I pray that pray that we would um, take uh, just what you have for each one of us out of this teaching. Uh, I pray that if if our ordinary day to day we want to leave you out of, um, that we would just not be oblivious. I pray that you would shine light into our darkness. That we would 
that we would gaze on you and, and pray ceaselessly and give thanks in all occasions and glorify your name in our business out in the world that others might see that and that others might come to you in that. And Father, I pray that if any of us are under persecution by the rich, I pray that we would, uh, that we would hear the encouragement in this and hear this idea that you have our back, that you, you're currently taking care of it. And then I pray that if any of us are behaving like these rich pagans, that we'd be very convicted by that and that we would t- take your grace, that we'd accept the grace you offer for us to repent and turn to you and come into your presence and allow you to draw near to us and cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, and mourn, weep, and well. I just thank you for that, that possibility. I thank you for that gift that you've given us to turn and repent and come close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>